Hello, welcome to Know Your Rights, a Belgian radio show about and against racism. Um, welcome to this journey where we try to educate ourselves on racism. Uh, we open all suggestions, uh, we welcome any input, so feel free to contact us. We have an Instagram page, Know Your Rights, Point Radio Central. Uh, we have a Facebook page, so please be welcomed. So we've talked about racism last time, but we haven't had opportunity to categorize racism to bring some clarity to this concept. Let's start with the basics. Could you explain what racism actually is? Yes, racism is accordingly to the ADL a belief that a particu particular race is superior or inferior to another. That a person's socials, that a person's social and moral traits are predetermined by his or her inborn biological characteristics. Racial separ separatism is a belief, most of the time based on racism, that different races should remain segregated and apart from one another. ADL is a leading anti-hate organization. It was originally founded in 1913 in response to the rising anti-Semitism and ADL is still the first call when acts of anti-Semitism occur. The organization is a global leader in exposing extremism and delivering anti-bias education. It is also a leading organization in training law enforcement. Its ultimate goal is a world in which no group or individual suffers from bias, discrimination or hate. According to the last shadow report by ENAR, uh, racism is an ideology, ideological structure Construct that assigns a certain race or ethnic group to a position of power over others on the basis of physical and cultural attribute, attributes, as well as economic wealth, involving hierarchical relationships, relations where the superior race exercises domination and control over others. INAR is a European network against racism. It is the only pan-European network against it that combines advocacy for racial equality and facilitating co cooperation among civil society anti-racism actors in Europe. The organization was set up in 1998 by grassroots activists on a mission to achieve legal changes at European level and making decisive progress towards racial equality in all EU member states. There's also different types of racism. Could you tell us a little bit more about the most common categorization? When it comes to categorization of such an abstract subject, there's usually three, sometimes more, types of racism that are defined. The Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center presented three types of racism, split up in two categories, one being individual racism, the other being systematic racism. Systematic racism can be split up in another two subcategories, structural and institutional racism. These are the most common categorizations of racism. The ACLRC is a research center that is part of the University of Calgary in Canada. Its mission being to promote respect for civil liberties and human rights in Alberta. They do this by providing information and referral as well as research and education. They also provide materials, teacher support, and much more for the Human Rights Education Project. 
This is an ongoing project also called the World Program. It was launch, launched in 2005 to advance the implementation of human rights education programs in all sectors. This World Program is structured in four phases in order to focus the efforts on specific sectors or issues. Intergroup references, intergroup uh, resources defines four forms of racism. Individual, structural, institutional and interpersonal racism. The intergroup resources is an online resource center that seeks to strengthen intergroup relations for social justice by sharing material, tools and lessons learned from organizations around the United States. Okay, so racism is usually divided into individual, interpersonal, institutional and structural racism. Let's start with institutional racism. Could you explain briefly? Um, institutional racism consists of, accordingly to the racial and social justice initiative, policies, practice and procedures that work to the benefit of white people and the detriment of people of color, usually in unintentionally or inadvertently practiced by social or political institutions. The um, initiative is an initiative of the government of Seattle, a city in the state of Washington, to acknowledge and fight institutional racism. Some examples of institutional, institutional racism include the Jim Crow laws in the United States or the stolen generation in Australia. The Jim Crow laws consists of, consisted of a system of segregation that prevented people of color to enjoy the same facilities as the white inhabitants of the United States. Where does the name Jim Crow comes from? The laws were named after a character that was known for being a white man that blackened his face, so blackface in other words. He wore rags to impersonate a light-footed and disrespectful African-American. Uh, the character was originally popular by black slaves, but Thomas D. Rice, an American player and playwright, adapted it into a racist theater character. Jim Crow would become famous for his uh, caricature and song called Jump Jim Crow. So Jim Crow is a racist theatrical character from the United States. You also wanted to play some songs concerning the issue? Yes. The following songs are called Jim Crow Blues by Lead Belly and Davenport. The first is written uh, by Lead Belly. He was a singer and guitarist and lived during the racial segregation in the USA. He made a song to incite people to unite in order to end the Jim Crow era. The second song by Davenport makes a sad statement in the end. He hopes to escape to the north for a better life, but in contrast with most of the other songs referring to the Jim Crow laws, he realizes that Jim Crow is everywhere and that he might as well go back to his town in the south. Back 
Okay, now you're gonna want this Jim Crow blues, huh? That bring news and make the man wear out his shoes when he get in a Jim Crow place. Johnson told me to This old Jim Crowisms did bad luck to me and you I've been traveling I've been traveling from toe to toe Everywhere I have been and let it don't be no stormy weather and we'll all be in the same boat, brother. Okay, now you're gonna want this Jim Crow blues, huh? That bring news and makes a man wear out his shoes when he get in a Jim Crow place. Son told me to This old Jim Crowisms Did bad luck to me and you I've been traveling I've been traveling from toe to toe Everywhere I have been I'll find some old Jim Crow One thing, people, I want everybody to know. You're going to find some Jim Crow every place you go. Down in Louisiana, Tennessee, Georgia's a mighty good place to go. And get together, break up this old Jim Crow. I told everybody over the radio. Got to 
get together and let it don't be no storm of weather and we'll all be in the same boat, brother. Okay, that was Jim Crow Blues, Lead Belly, and now we will listen to Jim Crow Blues, Dave and Poor. Sorry for the technical difficulties. <laughs> So we heard Jim Crow Blues first performed by Lead Belly and then by Davenport. Uh, you also talked about the stolen generation in Australia. What does that compromise? Accordingly to the Australians together, there has been many indigenous children forcibly removed from their families as a result of various government policies between, the 19, between 1910 and 1970. The generations of children removed under these policies became known as the Stolen Generation. 
The policies of child removal left a legacy of trauma and loss that continues to affect indigenous communities, families and individuals. You cited Australians Together. What kind of organization is that? It is a non-profit organization that believes uh, better outcomes for indigenous Australians begin with a change in their perspective. Australians Together is a privately funded through philan philanthropists uh, with a heart to see a change in this country. You prepared a song about the stolen generation? Yes, the song is called Took the Children Away by Archie Roach. He was part of the Stolen Generation policy and he wrote this song about his experience. The story's right, the story's true. I would not tell lies to you like the promise said they did not keep. And how they fenced us in like sheep. Said to us, come take care of him. Set us up on mission name. Told us to read, to write and pray. Then they took the children away, took the children away. The children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, tell this is for the Well, baby. 
So now I'm going to talk about structural racism or societal racism. It is a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. It, def it, it identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. I see so structural structural and societal racism, they are synonyms. And uh, how can they be distinguished from institutional racism? Um, structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic uh, and political systems in which we all exist. This definition is provided by the Aspen Institute, a non-profit think tank that is educational and policy study and a policy studies organization headquartered in Washington DC, but it is internationally active. Could you give us some examples then of structural racism? Um, so structural racism can be illustrated by the percentage of members of the European Parliament um, or MEPs that are people of color. This being around 2% or 17 out of 751 MEPs in 2014 till 2019. Um, the new parliament makes a slight improvement of about 2% or 13 MEPs. Another example is the anti-Ziganism in Europe. The UN anti-racism panel has charged that gypsies suffer widespread racism in Europe. The public opinion on Romani people being very negative, especially in Italy, Slo Slovakia and Greece, resulting in them receiving a different treatment than other ethnic groups. Um, Romani children are often put in either all Romani schools or delinquent schools with a var variety of human abuse. So, um, next up is individual racism or interpersonalized racism. It refers to an individual's racist assumptions, beliefs or behaviors and is a form of racial discrimination that stems from conscious and unconscious personal prejudice. Individual racism is connected to uh, or learned from a broader socio-economic histories and processes and is supported and reinforced by systematic racism, systemic racism. This is accordingly to the Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center. An example of this is a doll test. Children of two different ages were tested, children from 4 to 5 and 9 to 10 years old. The most recent doll test aimed to recreate a test that was conducted in 1940. The idea of the original test was to show how segregation affected African-American children. The idea was to make children choose between a black and a white doll. The research concluded that the children overwhelmingly preferred the white doll over the black doll. This led to the desegregation of American schools in the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954. So the original test led to the desegregation of American schools. What does this Brown versus Board of Education case hold? Um, so the segregation was deemed unconstitutional, although the schools were equal in quality. The case originated from the Brown parents, along with a few other parents file, that file a case. Uh, this was against the fact that their children had to go to another school that was located further from their uh, f from located further than an all-white school nearest to their home. So the recent test 
from 2010 was conducted by Margaret Beale Spencer, a renowned child psychologist and professor at the University of Chicago. Her team tested 133 children from schools that met very specific and economic specific economic and demographic requirements. Wow, very interesting. So this doll test is an illustration of individual racism. Thank you for sharing that. And um, so what is what did the most recent doll test reveal? They concluded that white children responded with a high white bias, attributing positive traits to their own skin color and associating negative traits to darker skin tones. African-American kids displayed a much lower white bias in comparison with white children. And Spencer explained that the different difference in bias between white and African-American children could be explained by the time spent reframing racial bias by their parents. People of color that have to cope with racism will try to counteract the white bias that have had a bad impact on them, while white people won't feel the need to do that and rather spend time with their kids discussing other issues. There was also barely any difference with younger and older children. So Spencer came to the conclusion that even in 2010, we are still living in a society where dark things are devalued and white things are valued. Um, so interpersonal racism uh, is another category and uh, its intergroup resources suggest that interpersonal racism is a racism that occurs between individuals. That is holding negative, hold that it is the holding of negative attitudes towards a different race or culture. Interpersonal racism often falls a victim or uh, perpetrator. Perpetrator. <laughs> Thanks. Model. Uh, some examples include police, br uh, po police brutality, especially in the USA, racist jobs applications, as well as discrimination when it comes to the real estate. Uh, then there's also cultural racism. Uh, this is the last category. Uh, it is the cultural um, cultural racism substitutes the cultural category European for the racial category white. We no longer have a superior race. We have instead a superior cu culture. It is the European culture or the Western culture, the West. What counts is culture, not color. This explains why James James Morris Blout, a professor at the Department of Geography and Anthropology from the University of Illinois at Chicago in a theory of cultural racism. Um, this concept is also known as ethnocentrism. It can be in identified in small differences, such as the ignorance that some Asian people have towards the fact that other people wish to eat with knife and fork rather than with chopsticks, but also colonialism. Um, so, but then how do you define ethnocentrism within colonialism? This refers to the social system in which the political conquests uh, by one society of other leads to cultural domination with enforced social changes. Thank you very much for that explanation. So when we are looking at types of racism, another approach we might take, another road to take, is uh, to look at the sociology of racism. So the sociology, sociology of racism is a study of the relationship between racism racial discrimination and racial inequality. inequality. There have been at least two dis big distinct phases in the sociology of racism. So in the late 19th century, when sociology, sociology emerged as a social scientific discipline, few scholars actually studied racism. And one notable exception is Dubois. Um, I assume 
not all listeners are acquainted with Dubois. Can you tell us something more about him? Well, William Edward Burkhardt de Dubois was the first black man to obtain a PhD from Harvard University. He was born in 1868 in the state of Massachusetts, that's the east coast of the USA, and he analyzed the political and economic roots of racism in its perverse impacts on Western institutions and psyches. Dubois became a leader of the prominent Niagara movement, a group of African-American activists that wanted equal rights for blacks. This civil rights organization was named after the Niagara Falls, after the mighty current of change they wanted to unleash. Don't forget that at the time the movement was founded in 1905, the USA was a place of legally sanctioned discrimination, there were widespread, widespread lynchings, enforced poverty, and open constant insult. Now, four years later, Dubois would also become one of the founders of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. We can listen to an excerpt from The Souls of Black Folk, which is a work by Dubois written in 1903. In this book, he exposes the material causes of racism at that time and explains the effects that racism had on black identity. In this short passage, we can hear Dubois describing a black boy's first realization of racism towards him. Perhaps this is Dubois' recollection of his own childhood. It is in the early days of rollicking boyhood that the revelation first burst upon one. All in a day, as it were. I remember well when the shadow swept across me. I was a little thing, away up in the hills of New England, with the dark Housatonic winds between Housac and Taconic to the sea. In a wee wooden schoolhouse, something put it into the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, 10 cents a package, and exchange. The exchange was merry, till one girl, a tall newcomer, refused my card. Refused it peremptorily with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like mayhap in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. So this essay was published in the Souls of Black Folk, as mentioned, but it had also been published earlier, for example, in the Atlantic in 1897, under the name The Veil of Self-Consciousness. Dubois mentioned The Veil just now in this excerpt, saying he was shut out from their world by a vast veil. A lot more interesting can be said about Dubois. Let's maybe listen to one more extract from Dubois' writings from the article called Strivings of the Negro People, which addresses the alienation, the alienation experienced by emancipated slaves and their families three decades later, or in his words, the freedman who has not yet found in freedom his promised land. Dubois writes about the question, how does it feel to be a problem? Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question. Unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, 
by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. Instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem? They say, I know an excellent colored man in my town. Or, do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word. And yet being a problem is a strange experience. It dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, shut out from their world by a vast veil. For the world I longed for and all its dazzling opportunities were theirs, not mine. Why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in mine own house? It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at one's self through the eyes of others. One feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro. Two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In the days of bondage, they thought to see in one divine event the end of all doubt and disappointment. Slavery was, indeed, the sum of all villainies, the cause of all sorrow, the root of all prejudice. Emancipation was the key to a promised land of sweeter beauty than ever stretched before the eyes of wearied Israelites. Years have passed away, 10, 20, 30, and yet, the freed man has not yet found in freedom his promised land. Merely a stern concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the Negro problem. And the spiritual striving of the freedmen's sons is the travail of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in the name of an historic race, in the name of this, the land of their father's fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. So, with the exception of Dubois, in the late 19th century, few sociologists studied racism. Yes, exactly. And you mentioned that the first period is described as a distinct phase in the sociology of racism. How was racism understood at that time? Well, the sociology of racism from that time, the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, generally considered racism as a set of overt individual-level attitudes. So this is the first phase in sociology of racism. Instead of studying racism as a social problem, many social scientists, truly products of their time, maintained racist attitudes and incorporated racist assumptions into their explanations of racial group differences in social outcomes. Unfortunately, there was a lot of very extreme racism in society. Sociology was no exception. And this was legitimated by dominant scientific discourses, such as social Darwinism, which misapplied the concept of natural selection to the social world to account for why some groups, racial, class, etc., excel more than others. <clears throat> social Darwinism is one racist fallacy which was produced during that era. Apart from this, can you give us some more examples uh, of things that were discussed at that time? Well, other than explicit individual-level attitudes, 
attention was given to explicit racist policies or laws. What would be analyzed is, for example, income inequality between whites and blacks. This was explained by po pointing out the policies excluding blacks from well-paid jobs. Another topic is the difference in educational attainment, which explained by the fact of legally segregated schools, etc. You can therefore understand how these first definitions of racism were dominated by looking at explicit, prejudicial beliefs and explicit attitudes. Precisely because states, organizations and individuals were explicit about how race mattered for the distribution of material and symbolic resources. That is very well put. Being overtly racist was socially acceptable, unfortunately. It was an explicit racist society where there was no difficulty documenting racist attitudes via opinion surveys. Then when did this limited understanding of racism in sociology start to evolve? Well, beginning in the 1920s, when the scientific val validity, validity of race came under closer scrutiny, some sociologists, primi primarily associated with the Chicago School, began to view racism as a distinct social problem. Only starting from the mid-20th century onwards, racism was no longer presented as explicit attitudes, but more attention was given to implicit biases and processes. The horrible racism of World War II is said to have given more urgency to this issue. The 1950s and 1960s witnessed a shift in how individuals, groups and nation-states used race in everyday life and social systems. There was a sharp decline in these overtly racist attitudes in the West, as measured by opinion surveys. Now, this was of course due to the civil rights movement, as well as because of increasing immigration, the fall of colonialism abroad, and the econo economic rise of developing nations. In the West, the confluence of the civil rights movement, increasing immigration, and what I just mentioned, coincided with the precipitous decline in these racist attitudes. So as racial prejudice declined unevenly in the United States and abroad, the theories arose to explain why racism, racial discrimination and racial inequality persisted, emerged or changed form in some places more than in other places. So what exactly is the difference in this second phase of the sociology of racism? Well, the second phase of sociology of racism starts to formulate racism in terms of implicit processes and implicit biases, which are constructed, sustained and enacted at both micro and macro levels, whereas the first phase focused on the direct relationship between racism and racial inequality, the second phase considers diffuse relationships between these concepts and the way in which historical, unconscious, institutional and systemic forces of racism interact with other social forces to perpetuate racial inequality. Therefore, this second phase witnessed the re-emergence of once ignored critical and structural analysis of racism, such as the ones from Dubois, as well as manifold new theories to account for the subtlety of present-day racism. These theories often focus on group-level processes and social structures, as opposed to our interaction with the individual. And social scientists uh, nowadays still build upon this multidimensional understanding of racism. 
Yes, indeed. Uh, most social scientists agree that this multivalent approach to the study of racism is both socially important as well as analytically useful to understand the persistence of racial inequality in a purportedly post-racial society. Can you give us a, an, exa an example of a view developed by the second school of the sociology of racism? For example, uh, whereas earlier scholars defined racism as primarily an individual problem of overt hostility that could be diminished through interracial interaction, later sociologists viewed racism as fundamentally rooted in political, economic and or status resource competition. Under these conditions, intergroup contact could even exacerbate the perceived group threat that, in this view, drives racial prejudice and discrimination. Building on this latter perspective, other scholars have examined the intersections of racism with colonialism, class conflict and gender. In the 1980s and 1990s, various theories of new racism and implicit biases emerged, suggesting that racism itself had transformed into more covert forms. Sociologists have also elaborated theories of institutional racism, exploring how racist ideologies and discriminatory practices have become embedded in taken-for-granted laws, policies and norms that systematically disadvantage certain groups. And since the turn of the century, social scientists have turned attention to the social processes whereby race, racism and racial inequalities are constructed and challenged at all levels. Um, what is colorblind racism? Well, there has to be made a distinction between racial colorblindness and colorblind racism. Racial or colorblindness, on the one hand, reflects an ideal in society in which skin color is insignificant. The ideal was most forcefully, forcefully articulated in the, context, in the context of the civil rights movement and international anti-racist movements of the 1950s and 1960s. Advocates for colorblindness argue that persons should be judged not by their skin color, but rather by the content of their character. In the words of Martin Luther King, I have a dream. My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I My poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream. How can colorblindness, uh, the idea that race does not matter, become racist? Well, Colorblind racism represents the assertion of the dominant group that they are living in a world where racial privilege no longer exists, but their behavior supports racialized structures and practices. 
It's, for example, denying the factual existence of racial privilege and of racial discrimination. This is colorblind racism. Or think, for example, of dominant groups rejecting policies such as affirmative action precisely because it does not help the status quo. Opposition to policies intended to advance racial equality effectively replicates racial inequality. What is affirmative action? Well, it could be argued that anything that goes beyond formal equality could be thus considered as positive action or affirmative action. It's more a process than a concept. Any measure that contributes to the elimination of inequalities in practice. It's the practice or policy of favoring individuals belonging to groups that are known to be discriminated against. In the various forms that affirmative action can take, one of its aims is to increase the representation of types of people that are discriminated against in certain areas and professions. For example, affirmative action can be taken to contribute to the elimination of inequalities and discrimination against people of a certain ethnicity, but equally for gender-based discrimination as well as class inequalities. We will now listen to Sigal Alon, who wrote a book called Race, Class and Affirmative Action. We live in a challenging uh, time. Uh, uh, economic inequality is rising. Uh, while at the same time, racial and ethnic inequality is quite persistent. Um, and so is uh, spatial or residential segregation. Now, most people believe that we can tackle all these types of inequality with one uh, policy uh, tool. They, they think so because minorities are more likely uh, to be poor and more likely to live in uh, poor places. They're right about that. But the problem is that the overlap between uh, um, class, racial, and spatial inequality is not very high. Not all poor individuals are uh, minorities. As a matter of fact, most of them are not. And not all poor individuals live in poor uh, places. So, if we take affirmative action policy uh, as an example, I can tell you, uh, based on the evidence uh, from my book, that there is no silver bullet uh, that can deal with all, aspect, all aspects of inequality um, at once. Uh, no one proper prototype, neither the race-based affirmative action or the class-based affirmative action, um, can, uh, 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 is especially well suited to, to deal with uh, simultaneously with all aspects of inequality. Currently, affirmative action policy in the United States is race-based, and it is very successful in generating racial and ethnic inequality, uh, sorry, diversity. But uh, the problem is that underprivileged uh, white and Asians are left behind. If we move to class-based affirmative action, it is going to be very successful in uh, Close to socioeconomic diversity at elite institutions, uh, but there is going to be a sharp decline in the share of uh, blacks and Hispanic students uh, at elite campuses. So the focus on, on one aspect limits our potential to tap into uh, the other aspects of, uh, of inequality. 
And, and this is because uh, if we look at the pool of high-achieving college-bound students, the overlap between race, class, and, and uh, special inequality is especially, uh, is especially low. So the notion that we can tackle all aspects of inequality with one policy or with one affirmative action policy is, uh, is an illusion. And, and this poses a challenge uh, to, to the debate about affirmative action, because the debate in the U.S. about affirmative action is very polarized. We have, uh, on one side, those who are rooting for uh, racial preferences, and on the other side, we have those who are uh, uh, um, rooting for class-based uh, preferences. And the problem is that the solution, we're not going to find a solution in any one of these uh, polls. Now, um, new and innovative designs of uh, affirmative action uh, were implemented in recent years in other uh, countries around the world. And um, what they demonstrate is that between those rival models of race-based affirmative action and <coughs> class-based affirmative action, there is a range of possibility, a spectrum, in fact, of affirmative action uh, policy. So Siegel explains that there is not one type of affirmative action that is well suited for all aspects of inequality. And she argues that a wide range of different types of affirmative action must coexist to increase equality. Now, there's a very interesting video about affirmative action called Positive Axis by Minderheden Forum in Belgium. Positive Axis is a Dutch translation of affirmative action as promoted by Minderheden Forum. Let's listen to an extract. You can find it on YouTube as well. Al tien jaar lang zijn personen met migratieachtergrond in ons land slechter af dan in eender welk ander EU-land. Al werkt de overheid de structurele hindernissen volledig weg, dan kant de arbeidsmarkt nog steeds met discriminatie. Met een vreemde naam moeten pas afgestudeerden dubbel zo vaak solliciteren om uitgenodigd te worden voor een jobinterview. So, uh, if you're interested, you can listen on YouTube. Now we will uh, finish the show. Um, let's listen to a song by Pravini uh, from her new documentary. This is the song related to Chapter 7. It's called The Recovery.
Okay, that that was a song by Pravini. Um, now to finish, we will listen to a talk by somebody with roots in Antwerp. Uh, she's called Olivia Rutazibwa, and she had a talk at TEDx Flanders in 2011. The talk is called Decolonize. Wow. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, at TED, they told me to think big. And uh, the big story I want to bring today is uh, I'm going to tell you a happy story about racism and discrimination. I know, please don't roll your eyes just yet, because if there is one thing I know is that we here in Belgium, we really don't like uh, to speak about racism and discrimination. I know this because uh, I grew up here in Belgium, here in Antwerp, actually. And for the longest time, I was convinced myself that there is no such thing as racism. My sister and I, we grew up with our white Flemish parents in the Antwerp suburb, in Merixem, actually. And uh, my take on racism was that if you put your mind to it, and if you really work hard, you can get anything you want in life. Because that's the life that I was living, or at least the life I thought I was living. But... Uh, Along the way, growing up, I had to change my mind about this. And uh, strangely enough, this was not a sad event. Actually, it was a, a quite happy event because by traveling around in Europe and growing up with um, a different skin than uh, the average person in Western Europe, uh, I have been forced to open uh, my mind to see things differently. And I guess this is the happy story I want to share with you uh, today. Because apart from growing up uh, with this uh, different skin color, uh, also, part of my blessing was the fact that I had the chance to grow up in a white, protected environment, which gave me a sense of uh, normality. And it's this sense of normality that I, I started realizing that I think everybody, uh, regardless of culture or religious background, actually has uh, the right to feel and is entitled to. So let me start with uh, a story, and it was in the spring of um, 2006. And Antwerp had been shaken by uh, the targeted killings done by a young man uh, called Hans van Temsche. He went around town uh, with a gun and he started shooting around. And he uh, killed a two-year-old Luna and her uh, nanny from Mali, Ulematu. And before that, he also uh, wounded a, a Turkish uh, woman, Sangul. She was just sitting on a bench and reading a book. Anyway, it, sh it shook up the city, actually. And uh, in a rare um, show of unity and solidarity, all the communities of Antwerp had come together to march against uh, this uh, useless violence. And uh, I was working downtown at that time, so during my lunch break, I uh, took my bike and I went to see the march. And it was quite a view, actually. I was, I was moved, I have to say. And um, next to me comes uh, an older man. He gets off his bike and he stands next to me to just like me watch um, this, um, this march. And uh, he turns to me and he says, uh, so where are you from? And you have to know I'm really used to these kind of conversations because I have so many of them. So uh, usually I know the right answers to make it like a really smooth conversation. But this time I was a bit, you know, taken by the moment and I heard from his accent that he was from Antwerp. So I said, uh, just like you, I'm from Antwerp, uh, isn't this great? And uh, he said, no, no, where are you really from? So obviously I snapped back in the normal uh, way of this conversation. And I said, you know, my parents are from Rwanda. 
but I was born here in Belgium and I grew up in Antwerp. And uh, he said, uh-huh, so are you a refugee? And I said, uh, no, not really. I just told you, you know, that I was born in Belgium. But anyway, so I was a bit surprised because normally you usually get uh, immediately to the next uh, comment, and that is, oh, my, you speak Dutch so well. Like, in, uh, <laughs> in, uh, in Antwerp. <laughs> so in, uh, yeah, in Antwerp slang, that would sound like, I might have speak two Netherlands. So anyway. Um, the fact that I repeated that I grew up in Antwerp didn't stop him from uh, saying I might have speak to Netherlands. So anyway, I was thinking, let's uh, change the game a bit. And instead of having this type of interrogation, let's make it a conversation. So I asked him, so, so, where are you from? So for people that are not from Antwerp or Belgium, maybe you should imagine that two people are standing uh, somewhere in Manhattan. They're both from New York. They hear it from their accents. And the one is saying, I'm from Brooklyn, right? So the guy, uh, to his credit, he did not just say, you know, I'm from here. No, 